Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and I've got a great episode lined up for you. My guest this week is Runner's World editor and 1968 Boston Marathon winner, Ambie Burfoot. We discuss his latest book, First Ladies of Running, that profiles 22 inspiring women who broke down the earliest barriers in women's running. It's everything from finishing the first road races to pushing back against resistance, both societal and physical, the entry of the women's marathon as an Olympic event, and what Oprah has to do with the surge in popularity of women's running today. But first, let's see what's going on this week in sports. First up, some good news with the WNBA. Starting with the 2016 season, which began earlier this week, the WNBA will offer advanced box scores after each game. This will include a lot of categories like player impact estimate, effective field goal percentage, true shooting percentage, defensive rating, usage percentage, and assist-to-turnover ratio, among others. The league is also updating its archive with the traditional box scores of every game in league history. Games since 2007 are available now on WNBA.com, and games from 1997 to 2006 will be added in the coming weeks. This comes on the heels of increased demands from players, fans, and media, especially after Sue Bird's piece for the Players' Tribune lamented the lack of data in the women's game. For more context and information on the analytics in women's basketball, listen to our previous episode with Ian Levy, which was released on April 13th. The WNBA is celebrating its 20th season this year, and hopefully the new influx of data will help to continue expanding the game. Next up, the bracket for the NCAA softball tournament was announced earlier this week, and the field of 64 includes some familiar powerhouses like two-time defending champ the University of Florida Gators. If Florida wins again this year, they'll be only the second to win three consecutive titles. UCLA last did this in 1990. But they'll definitely be facing some stiff competition. For example, Florida Atlantic is the only other team with 50 wins on the season, and they'll start off in the same best-of-three regional round as the Gators. Moving on to the Super Regional round, where the field shrinks from 64 teams to just 16, Auburn could pose a challenge on the strength of their offense. Other usual suspects come from the Pac-12 conference, notably Oregon and UCLA, which could meet in the Super Regional round. And Oregon might be the best hope for a Pac-12 champ. They lead in slugging percentage and have a dominant pitcher in Sheridan Hawkins. But the story may not actually be about traditional conference powerhouses at all. If the seating holds, a record six conferences will see representatives host Super Regionals. That's that round of 16. And keep an eye out for Oklahoma, whose entire lineup bats 300, and they each have a 400 on-base percentage, which is pretty incredible stuff. So, play begins this weekend with the regional rounds, and it's airing on ESPN Affiliates and SECN. Go to NCAA.com for the full lineup. And that'll do it for This Week in Sports, and when we come back, we're talking with Ambie Burfoot. Welcome back to the show. I am very pleased to be joined by Ambie Burfoot. Ambie is a longtime editor of Runner's World magazine, and he's also the winner of the 1968 Boston Marathon. Uh, he has also authored quite a few books on running, including his latest, First Ladies of Running, 22 Inspiring Profiles of the Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Visionaries Who Changed the Sport Forever. So, Ambie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Maeve. It's a delight to be with you. First of all, I just want to say thank you for writing this book. I really found something in every single one of the profiles that either surprised me or encouraged me or was something that I could relate to. And I also think it's important to honor the accomplishments that got us to this point today, where at least uh, my impression is that running seems like one of the most common and accessible sports for everyday people. Um, so thank you for, for bringing to light many of these fantastic women. Well, thank you for saying what you did. One obstacle to the book in the early going was that uh, a couple of people said, 
well, all the stories are going to sound the same, aren't they? And I said, yeah, there's going to be some similarities because we all go through the similar things. But I believe that each of the women is unique uh, and has her own story to tell. And the similarities and the differences, uh, I think, make for an interesting intertwining. Well, that's a really great segue to my first question. Uh, before we kind of get into the details that make all of these women unique, what do you, what did you find were some of the common themes uh, that made these women so successful and so determined? Well, the most common theme was also the simplest, and that is for some reason, which I don't think you or I or anyone else can define, these particular women were just women who found great joy and pleasure in the act of running, in movement, in being outside. They were nature lovers, animal lovers, uh, clean environment lovers, and they just loved to be out there doing it. And some of them did many sports, but all of them in the end ended up uh, focusing primarily on running. I'm sure it's partially because they found themselves succeeding at running. And of course, we all like to pursue that which we are pretty good at. <laughs> of let's, course. <laughs> let's be honest. And uh, secondly, I think what they all had, which was also natural, which is natural to all runners, but perhaps not thought of for women in the late 50s, 1960s, early 1970s, is they wanted to see how good they could be. Hmm. And running is the damnedest sport for, for measuring that, by which I mean it's the easiest. The distances are standard distances. Every stopwatch clicks along at the same rate. So you have very good um, measures to see how uh, things are going. And um, they, they could see if they were improving or not. And they all wanted to do what they could to improve. You know, I think that that's a really interesting point and maybe an obvious one that I didn't think of. But uh, a couple episodes ago, I had on a man named Ian Levy who does uh, basketball analytics. And we were discussing uh, the lack of data surrounding women's basketball and college women's basketball in particular. And he was saying that this lack of data was a real barrier to bringing attention to the sport because there was very little you could do by way of comparison. So I think it's interesting that you bring up this aspect of measurement as something that's important in the uh, continued improvement of the sport. Well, uh, there's no question that running is easy to measure, and I use the term damnable or something like that, uh, because that measurement also makes it very hard to get past certain barriers. It took a long time for Roger Bannister or anyone to break four minutes in the mile. Nobody was paying any attention, but an English woman broke five minutes in the mile for the first time, very close to Roger Bannister. And uh, of course, all of our distances from the 100 meters to the marathon are clocked and records have been kept for 150 years. And uh, we're all chasing after the records and uh, records may be made to be broken, <laughs> but they're also at this point very, very hard to break. Well, I want to come back to records a little further into our conversation, uh, but let's back up for a minute. So there were a number of moments in the book that certainly stood out for me, but from kind of a bird's eye view, when you introduce this book to people who may not be as familiar with the sport, what are some of the major moments or the crucial moments in the history of women's competitive running that you think are critical to understanding where we are today? Well, there are a lot of them. I think the first thing I, I want to say is that a big reason for me to write the book is that uh, quite a few sports followers knew some of the story of Joan Benoit, who's on the cover of the book for women winning the first Olympic marathon. And they knew about Greta Waits and all her wins in the New York City Marathon. And perhaps they heard of Mary Decker also. But they didn't realize that there were 20 other women who made significant contributions through the years, often at an era when there was almost no coverage for women's running, and so therefore these women are not known uh, at all. 
Everyone believes that the marathon and Joan Benoit in 1984 is what everything was about in women's running, but almost nobody knows the story of how we got started down the path to the Olympic marathon. And that story started in 1960 when the U.S. Olympic trials had a women's half mile, uh, 800 meters actually. Mm -hmm. In 1960, this was for the first time since 1928. After 1928, when the Olympic uh, 800 meters for women had a few women who appeared to be tired, sweaty, and not as feminine looking at the end of the race <laughs> as some sports right. writers and Olympic officials thought they should be, uh, it, the, the race, the 800 meters, was essentially banned. And it didn't come back until 1960. Uh, and the number of runners, uh, women, many, 16 or 17 years old, showed up at Abilene, Texas, of all places. Where it was about 100 <laughs> degrees and really sweaty and humid, and ran the 800 meters there. And from that group, uh, an interesting number of them continued forward and made major contributions to the sport, even though they aren't names that are well recognized. So much of this book focuses on the decades between 1960 and, and the early 1990s. Um, and especially in the 1970s, this was really a moment of of big societal change in gender relations, and especially in sports with the passing of Title IX in 1972. These women are also many of your own personal contemporaries. You know, these were women that you knew and, and some of them that you ran with. How did that perspective inform your running? And did any of your impressions change when you revisited these stories all these years later? Certainly the fact that uh, these women were contemporaneous with me uh, was a huge reason for me to undertake the book. And since I was out there then, since I did know many of them as a runner, and also many of them through my years at Runner's World, uh, I just had intersected with so many of these women through the years that they knew me and I knew them, and they knew that I was an authentic member of the sport that they loved and that I had done serious journalism. The other question that I think you just asked or wrapped <laughs> in there somewhere is a really interesting one, and that is I kind of expected to, as I wrote the book, to find out that many of the women were angry about the fact that they had not had opportunities uh, to reach high levels of competitive excellence because mm -hmm. the doors were so closed. Specifically, I'm talking about the Olympics. And what I found was not, not necessarily that. Uh, first, the women in the 60s were, uh, it's just six or seven years before Title IX, but that was so many, uh, psychologically, that was so many years before anyone could even begin to conceive of women's opportunities in sports or mm -hmm. women in the Olympics, that they didn't. Nobody from that era was angry that they couldn't run in the Olympics. They were just a little bit ticked off that there were road races that made them stop, start on the sidewalks and refuse to time them and give them official numbers and stuff sure. like that, which was, yeah. you know, borderline or seriously ridiculous because there were only... 50 of us. Let's remember that all of us, male and female, were, were, were weirdos and wackos and fringe <laughs> elements in the 60s. Uh, nobody was running. Uh, so there was no reason we couldn't have put one or two women into the race and welcomed them. Uh, but people said the rules forbade that. And everywhere you turn, there was someone claiming to uphold the rules for the sake of protecting women, I suppose. Uh, I, you know, so many half-baked theories have been thrown out there through the years. Um, so it wasn't until the 70s when I began to encounter some women who said, you know, I was, I was the best in the world in 1976. If there had been an Olympic marathon for me to aspire to, oh my gosh, I would have trained twice as hard and probably yeah. cut a few more minutes off of my time uh, if I had just been given the same opportunity that Frank Shorter had and Bill Rogers had. But, of course, that just wasn't there then. So that was when they really 
had to organize and start fighting for the Olympic marathon, knowing that it was going to take time, knowing that it wasn't going to open the doors soon enough for them personally, uh, but in the hope that uh, the next generation of their sisters would have the opportunities that they didn't. Yeah. Well, now let's move forward a little bit in time to when the marathon did become an Olympic event, because I think this this point you brought up about feeling kind of anger, injustice does start to sprout up, especially I was quite struck by some of the comments that Francie LaRue made. Um, She was a five-time Olympian, and her first Olympics were uh, the Munich Olympics, where, of course, there was the terrorist attack on the Israeli athletes. And she only learned later when she was watching a documentary about a fellow runner, Steve Prefontaine. Is that correct? Yes, he was the most uh, famous American uh, track runner of the time. And importantly to the story, his college coach was also the Olympic coach in 1972. Yes. So she... In your book, she describes that she's watching this documentary about his career, and they, of course, talk about the Munich Olympics. And she said that she was quite angry to learn of how much support he had at those Olympics after the the attacks and that he was still able to perform well. And she felt that she had not been able to perform at her best. And then she really eloquently outlined some of the historic and structural disadvantages that face female athletes. And I just want to read the quote in full because I thought it was just so well said. Um, She said, sports at all ages and levels has been highly encouraged and promoted among males. Until this kind of involvement is achieved among females, comparisons of the relative performances of men and women will be pointless. I I literally read her comments and I I scribbled in, in the margins of my page is it 1972 or 2016? Mm -hmm. Because it still seems so relevant and true. Um, So this is a a, a two-pointed question again, but where do you still see shortcomings in this regard? And and where do you see the areas of greatest improvement? Well, first of all, to go back to Francie and her comments about 1972, I was as thunderstruck by her uh, very bare and emotional comments as you were when you read them. I don't believe she's ever said that to anyone else. Uh, at least I haven't personally seen it recorded anywhere else, but it obviously uh, left a very emotional, uh, I hesitate to say scar, but it sounds pretty much like that when she describes it. And, and basically what she's saying is in 1972, she went to the Olympics and I don't have it in front of me, but she would have been very young, let's say 20 or 21. And here you are all alone at this huge international event. And uh, she felt like nobody was taking care of her. She was completely on her own. And then you have the the Munich uh, massacre and, and the death of the athletes and the delaying of the Olympics for a couple of days and chaos and terror and fear and Again, a 20-year-old girl who nobody there's nobody there in her immediate family or a coach to take care of her. And she felt very right. much uh, adrift uh, in that scary situation. And then she reads or she, uh, she learns in the movie three decades later that her contemporary, Steve Prefontaine, the great American middle-distance runner, uh, had his coaches all around him, uh, his fellow athletes. uh, The Olympic coach was his personal coach from college, and and he was, I don't want to say coddled, but he was just informed and protected uh, in a way that she wasn't. And and she, uh, she was quite bitter about that, and understandably so. Then you ask me about the present, and I have to say that I can't honestly think of uh, ways in which women are slighted in 2016. The sport has advanced so dramatically. Uh, Women have so many opportunities now uh, equal to men uh, in the important areas like prize money and all the races from the very first day of professionalism in road running, which was 
I think 1986 or so, at the Boston Marathon. There still weren't many women runners then, but they established a prize structure that was absolutely equal for women and men from first place to 10th place or whatever. That is so refreshing. <laughs> uh, it was pretty, you know, uh, there are many uh, statisticians who have argued against it, uh, saying it was too easy for women to make money finishing 7th <laughs> or 8th uh, in those days. But but that was, that was done. And, of course, the revolution in... in Running and women's running is so complete that there are now more women than men in almost all of the races that we all go to. Uh, the sport, which is a huge international business, of course, uh, with shoes and apparel and energy bars and drinks and all of that, uh, is very much uh, built now on women's purchasing power. So you can be sure that uh, women are being marketed to and, and have the opportunity to uh, find as many products as they would like that are specifically uh, mm -hmm. designed and tailored for them. So we've really come a long way in, in relatively short time, 30, I guess it's 40 years now. Uh, but certainly, uh, we can, sadly, we can never turn back the clock and give Francie LaRue and others uh, the opportunities that they missed. That's just uh, done and gone, sadly. Well, I think that this actually is a nice transition into some of your work as a journalist and editor at Runner's World, um, because I think part of the difference in men's and women's sports today is maybe not as related to pure athletic talent or opportunity, but more in line with media coverage or uh, sponsoring opportunities and who is seen as more bankable or marketable uh, contract negotiations, things of that nature. Um, so as a member of, of the media and a journalist, a longtime journalist, at least in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the first woman that you write about from your perspective as a journalist and uh, as an editor of Runner's World is Greta Waits. So I'm wondering if she, first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about that experience and, and covering her racing from a journalistic perspective. Well, in the book, which has 22 profiles, uh, I wrote 20 of them uh, objectively third person, if you would. But two of them I wrote in the first person, and that was because uh, with two of them, Greta Waits and Oprah Winfrey, I actually ran marathons at their side or most of the miles of a marathon at their side. So I was able to add some color to those chapters that I didn't honestly have for the other chapters, and I figured why not take advantage of it. <laughs> the, uh, to me, the, 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 the funny stories that I remember about Greta Waits' first marathon in, in New York City was the day of the marathon. Sunday morning early, I went downstairs to the athletes, Breakfast, I very rudely sat myself down to the next to the expected winner, who was a uh, German runner, and I started asking her dumb, intrusive questions, and she didn't answer. She just looked up and said to me, uh, pointed across the room and said, if she finishes the race, she will win. And she was pointing to this woman uh, who I had no idea who she was. And I couldn't believe that the world record holder and expected winner in the race was basically saying, this other woman over there is better than I am. Uh, but that was because she was European and she knew that Greta Waits was potentially the greatest distance runner in the, in the history of the world at that time. She had won uh, everything that was longer than two miles uh, in Europe, the problem being that there weren't many races for women that were mm. longer than two miles or 3,000 meters. So she shows up at her first New York City marathon basically just to have a weekend in New York with her husband. They had never been there. She had never run more than 12 miles or so. <laughs> But she's just such a fantastic athlete that she easily wins the race and easily wow. breaks the world record. And so the next morning, I'm like, oh, my God, I have to write a story now about someone I don't know anything about. So I hunt down her hotel. I 
get her number. I go up and knock. No, I call from downstairs and say, hey, could I come up and talk to you? Fully expecting that she would say no, like any normal person. Uh, and she said yes. And I went up to her room, and she and her husband had been living there for four or five days. And it looked like every runner's room I had ever seen, which was to say all their running clothes and underwear and damp shirts and shorts were hanging from every fixture in the, uh, in the room. It was just like being with any other runner. And uh, she spoke... Uh, good English, but it was not her first language, uh, mm -hmm. and she was hesitant about it, but we sat and chatted, and she was wonderfully helpful, uh, not expressive, but she answered what I needed to know in kind of short, simple sentences, and it was a beginning of uh, what I can call a friendship because she kept coming back to the United States to <laughs> win New York City for the next decade. And I saw her dozens of times at New York and Boston and other places. And her English got better and she got funnier and she kept on winning and uh, was just clearly one of the most dramatic and important people in this story that leads up to the Olympic marathon. So was this, was she the first woman that you covered in depth for the magazine? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. She just happened to be the, the first one that I had this stupid idea I would try and run a marathon with. And <laughs> the actual day that I ran with her, I managed to hang with her for about 23 miles, but she dumped me unceremoniously the last <laughs> three miles. <laughs> I didn't catch up to her until the press room and then her hotel room the next day. Well, talk about a front row seat to history. <laughs> yes, exactly. More broadly then, I'm, I'm interested in, in runner's world history with, with, rim, with women's running. Um, would you say that the coverage from the magazine has been rough, roughly equitable or has it evolved as kind of the prominence of, of women's running has evolved? Well, you know, I, I don't want to, nobody's got any data on that. Nobody's done any studies that I know about that. But, but I can say that Runner's World was always a magazine that was edited by real runners. Uh, and real runners were always interested in welcoming more runners to the, to the fold, uh, whatever gender and other persuasions they might have. Uh, a very important editor in the 70s named Joe Henderson was also a member of the International Running Runners Committee, which lobbied very, very hard to get the women's marathon into the Olympics in 1984. He had several uh, female marathoner counterparts, but he was a very important part of the group also because of his communication and journalism. Uh, experience and, and his belief in, in the concept. And, and we all absolutely believe that there, there was never a reason why women shouldn't be on the roads running with us. Uh, after all, the, you know, the roads are wide and they're long and they're capable of holding as many people as anybody wants to put out there. It's not like a track race where you sometimes are limited to eight lanes or, or something like that. So, uh, it was only the officials who were, you know, typically, sadly, 80-year-old men who may or may <laughs> not have been athletes at an earlier point in their careers. If they were, they were probably sprinters or hammer throwers or something. Uh, as I said earlier, the distance runners were the outcasts and the freaks and uh, <laughs> uh, not the societal kingpins. So it was the older officials who just had no understanding of what it meant to, to want to, to run and to have opportunity. They were the ones who were always keeping women out. Well, I'm glad that you bring up uh, kind of the role of men in the formation and, and evolution of women's running, because by my reading of, of your book, there were sort of three groups of men. And the first were fellow racers, of course, and... I was especially tickled reading some of their comments when they were either passed by some of these women in races or when they got to the finish line and things, you know, things like, oh, I wish my wife would race with me like you do. Or um, I think there was one guy who uh, got got beaten in a race and he said, you know, I told my wife that the day a woman beat me would be the day I retire. And <laughs> but now I see that, you know, I need to keep running because you're really that good. 
Um, so there was definitely support. Many of the women, all of the women said that the fellow male racers were very supportive. So that was one group. The second group were uh, what I think of as their male mentors. So coaches, uh, fellow runners who were particularly important to their development, um, their husbands, many of their coaches became their husbands and then some their ex-husbands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then this, th- this third category uh, is, of course, these race officials. And I, I would really be interested to hear your kind of retelling of maybe one of the most famous incidents of, of a male race official getting in the way of a woman. And that's, of course, Catherine Switzer and Jock Semple. So would you would you deign to tell us the tale? <laughs> yeah, the the Catherine Switzer uh, Jock Semple uh, collision or attack it was quite brutal looking at least uh, occurred in the 1967 Boston Marathon. It will be the 50th anniversary of that next April, and so we will all be reliving it then. <laughs> Uh, This April, we relived uh, the first woman running at Boston, and that was Bobby Gibb in 1966. Mm -hmm. So this year was her 50th anniversary. The next year, she came back and won the race again, but Catherine Switzer was also in the race. And Catherine, unlike Bobby, had obtained the race number. And it's not exactly clear how she did that, but she she tells the story that she uh, was at that point in her, her life an aspiring author, and like uh, many authors, she kind of liked the initials approach to her name, so she she used K.V. Switzer as her name often, and she entered the Boston Marathon that way. And they didn't know who K.V. Switzer was, so they returned. Uh, they gave her a number. And on race day, she sent uh, her coach to pick up the number for her. Uh, I don't know how he did it without getting a medical exam, because they used to give us <laughs> medical exams. They would actually check our pulse for a few seconds before they let us wow. go. And then the third thing you have to do to get into the race is to go into the starting pen, which, as I said, it's only 500 runners, but they used to check everybody's number and make sure you had an official number before you could go to the start. So she went into the pen with a heavy sweatshirt on on a cool, drizzly day, and she whipped her sweatshirt up briefly and showed her number underneath, and the race director said, good, you're good, and just Mm -hmm. shoved her in without looking at her face or anything else. So several miles down the road, she's running with some friends from Syracuse, and uh, suddenly the press and officials vehicle comes by, and it's got the race guys, uh, race officials on it, including Jock Semple, and they see, A, she's a woman, B, she's got a number on her on her vest, on her front. They wouldn't have bothered her if she hadn't had a number. They would have just said that she didn't actually exist, which uh-huh. is what they, did, <laughs> what they did with Bobby Gibb. But since she had a number, they considered that a violation of the rules that they were sworn to uphold. So the race official, Jock Semple, went tearing after her with the intent of not beating to her, beating her to a pulp. He didn't want to do that. He just wanted to rip the number off her chest and take it back home. Uh, and as he was bearing down on her uh, with the most horrendous, uh, threatening scowl you've ever seen, her boyfriend, who happened to be a 250-pound hammer thrower... Uh, <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> yeah, spotted him and body blocked him away, and she got, she got off, and they were able to finish the race, but somebody snapped the photos, and they were so frightening that they were literally beamed around the world the, hmm. the next year, next day, and uh, Bobby Gibb won for the second year in a row, but the story was that this woman had been attacked uh, on the uh, during the race, so uh, that created a huge stir and got a huge amount of uh, publicity. Uh, and, of course, Catherine Switzer, to her credit, rather than retiring forever from the sport, uh, given how she was treated, actually dedicated her life to promoting women's running. Uh, she worked very hard at her own marathoning and became uh, much, much faster in the next five or six years because she was training 100 miles a week. And wow. then she got a corporate job with Avon, 
and started an international Avon running circuit in countries around the globe uh, where there were literally no women runners. She put on events and women runners started coming out to them. And that was a very large, uh, give a very large push to the Olympic movement since the Olympics wanted, they wanted proof that a sport was in fact an international sport and not just something that happened in Boston mm. and New York. Mm -hmm. So uh, her, the unfortunate attack of 1967 is quite uh, closely linked to the Olympic marathon in 1984, 17 years later. Well, certainly those photos of Catherine and, and Jock are very impactful. And it brings me to my next question, because I think that symbols are very important and they speak volumes and they can often change minds. And I was a little surprised that not many of the women featured in the book thought of their running as a a uh, political statement as an explicit political statement. It either sort of morphed into that a little bit later or in hindsight, they see the contributions they made. Um, but on the other hand, there was one woman uh, who, who did make a uh, explicit political statement. And that was Nina Kusick, who won the first Boston, who was the first official women's winner of the Boston marathon um, but at the New York City Marathon in 1972, she organized a sit-in at the starting line because at the time, the rules dictated that the women had to either start at a different time or start at a different place than the men's runners. Um, so it, I was wondering why some of the women found this to be like found running to be a strong political, a strong political or feminist statement and, and other women that wasn't how they felt about it. Did you get any sense of that? In the 60s, those women were so far ahead of their time, literally, that they couldn't conceive of it as a feminist uh, statement. Uh, by the early 1970s, uh, there was Nina, and there were three or four others, including Catherine Switzer and Charlotte Lettuce, and, and then uh, by the late 70s, everybody was on board. Uh, as far as larger feminist uh, statements go and empowerment across all channels of life, I, I don't think many of them were thinking about that. They were runners first and foremost. They were very hardworking, hard training runners. And frankly, they were more uh, focused on their own lives and their own improvements and being the best they could in the sport than they were on, on the social cultural side of feminism. I will say about that strike in 1972, they knew what the press was going to pay attention to. Hmm. And whoever thought of the idea of a sit-down strike, whether it was Nina or one of her friends who did it with her, uh, they totally realized that the photo would be in the New York, <laughs> New York Times the next day rather than the photo of the race winners. They got very uh, clever and smart uh, early on uh, in the ways that you have to, because if you're, you know, if you're fighting wars like this, you have to win on all fronts and important front is obviously the media. Well, I think an, another aspect of, of this book that was interesting to me, we've discussed at various points how a lot of the evolution of women's running coincided with these big cultural shifts in the country surrounding, you know, gender and, um, and also race. And uh, you feature an African-American woman in your book named Marilyn Bevins, and she was the first African-American woman to win a marathon. And then she kept on winning marathons. <laughs> um, but she didn't spend much time discussing any extra challenges or, or discrimination that must have been presented to her. Um, so I'm wondering, what is there a legacy of racism from the earlier eras that have been left on the running community? or what her attitude was, if you had any feel for that? Um, uh, the, the chapter on Marilyn Bevins is one of the ones that I'm proudest of because I think she is perhaps the quietest of all the women in, in my book, uh, and certainly the least known of all of them, and perhaps uh, as deserving as any uh, for the, her accomplishments, which, which were significant simply because she had absolutely no 
role models. I mean, everybody else, as you said before, had a boyfriend or a coach or something, and they were, you know, middle class uh, whites and went to good high schools and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, Marilyn really didn't have any of that. She latched on to some of the guys who were running in Baltimore once she got going, but she she really had to go it alone as a black woman in the 1970s. I don't recall seeing another black woman running in those days. I'm sure there were some, uh, but I don't recall seeing them, and certainly none approached her uh, talent and dedication and success on the road. So she's a, she's a special story. Uh, she is, nonetheless, a representative of the, the loneliness of the long-distance runner, the old kind of runner. Uh, yeah. So marathoning is an uh, upper-middle-class, largely white sport, and, and that's for... Uh, economic reasons for the most part, uh, others as well, but uh, you know, you have to have a certain amount of leisure time to get out mm -hmm. there and train and you have to mm -hmm. live in an environment where you can walk out the door and run safely or go into the parks and things like that. So to this day, uh, African Americans are very underrepresented in this country, but there are wonderful groups going now. There's a group called Black Girls Run that is spreading across the country. There's a Black Marathoners Association that has been honoring people like Marilyn Bevins for the last five or six years. So there is much more promotion of African-American running uh, now than there used to be. But of course, we're going to need economic progress to really move things ahead. You know, that is so interesting. I'd never thought before of running as marathon running as a sport that has a socioeconomic uh, uh, part to it. I, I mean, I think on this podcast and, and in lots of, of commentary I read, it's often brought up that sports like hockey and lacrosse and sports that require lots of special expensive equipment um, certainly have a socioeconomic divide. But Running seems so, it just seems so basic, you know, you just need your own body and a pair of shoes. But I, I had never cal calculated in or factored in the time and the space that it takes to, to do a lot of running as well. Well, and it's also hidden a little bit now by the fact that the East Africans win all of the road races. So if you look for photos of marathon winners in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and Boston, uh, they're all black runners, but they aren't Americans. They're East Africans. And that kind of gives the impression that there are a lot of African Americans running. But in this country, uh, it isn't true, sadly. It's probably the sport is about 95% white. Hmm. Let's move on to one other very, very famous black runner, and that, of course, is Oprah. She is maybe kind of unlike the rest of the runners in your book in that she is not an elite runner, and um, she came to the sport later in life. But you, as you mentioned earlier, had the opportunity to run with her in her marathon. So can you describe that experience and why Oprah was critical to bringing running to the masses, at least for women? Yes, sure. Uh, my book looks and sounds as if it should end in 1984 when Joan Benoit hits the finish line in the Olympic marathon. In fact, it doesn't end until Oprah Winfrey runs the marathon 10 years later. And the reasons for that are twofold. First, I was there and I had the opportunity to run with Oprah in 1994. And two, I'm no dummy. If you got a chance to put Oprah in your book, that's what you do. That's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was at the 1994 Marine Corps Marathon where I was uh, speaking but not planning to run. I was speaking at a running clinic, as I often do. And the day before the race was suddenly this article in the Washington Post that says, Oprah Winfrey is running the marathon tomorrow or the next day after. And I'm in town already, and I'm like, well, how can Oprah's the most famous person who's ever run a marathon to this day. I'm the editor of Runner's World magazine. How can I not tag along with her and write a story about what it's like? 
So I waited in the Pentagon parking lot at the three-mile mark, and Oprah came along wearing a heavy sweatshirt, looking very unhappy because it was a drizzly gray day. I'm sure not the kind of day she wanted to be running on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I dropped in behind her, and I ran the next... Uh, 23 yards, uh, 23 miles. <laughs> Quick race. <laughs> it was 23 miles, uh, 10 yards behind her, observing the whole thing. And uh, what did I observe? Well, the National Enquirer had flown in two runners to run it precisely beside her on her left shoulder and right shoulder the entire distance. And they had motorcycle photographers everywhere hoping for her to collapse or do something hugely oh, embarrassing that was put into the uh, National Enquirer. And every single runner in the race who saw her felt compelled to go up to her, clap her on the shoulders and say, Oprah, we're so glad you're here. You're such an inspiration. I watch your show every day. It's just mm. wonderful that you're doing this, a positive example for everyone. And in the early miles of the race, being a good sport, she would turn her head around and nod to these people and acknowledge what they had said to her. But as every marathoner knows, you get to 15 miles and 18 miles and 20 miles, and you don't feel like getting patted on the back anymore. You certainly don't have the energy <laughs> to acknowledge people who are patting you on the back or cheering or anything else. You just want to get the darn race over. And she was just plugging along and plugging along and plugging along. And uh, I felt that the, the race that she ran that day, the fact that she finished in four hours and 29 minutes, which was mm. considered slow in 1994. But today it's the actual average time for all marathoners huh. in, in the country. So Oprah was not at the back. She's at the 50th percentile now. And, uh, you know, she did something that people could relate to. Because, frankly, no one can relate to winning the Olympic marathon. We're mm. all smart enough to know that's not us, unless we're one of the one-tenth one of one percent. Uh, but to see that Oprah can run the marathon, uh, a mostly overweight, yo-yo dieting, African-American, southern woman uh, with no sporting history or background, if she can run a marathon, then I can run a marathon. <laughs> Anyone can run a marathon. And, and people literally took up that cry, if Oprah can do it, so can you. Or if Oprah can do it, I can do it too. And they used that to motivate themselves. And suddenly we had very ordinary uh, women, men as well, uh, as it turns out, but mainly uh, women who got the notion darn, if Oprah can do this, so can I. And even if I don't want to run a marathon, although many did, even if I don't, I can get myself into shape and I can reach goals and I can do some pretty uh, astonishing things. So uh, I thought hers was the, was the bravest, honestly, the bravest, most courageous, in some ways, most difficult marathon I've ever seen anyone mm. run. And no question in my mind, that as great an athlete and person as Joan Benoit Samuelson is, that it was Oprah Winfrey that really uh, was more responsible for the women's running boom, which started a year or two later in about the mid-1990s and has just been cascading ever since then. Well, it certainly rings true to me that having somebody relatable running encourages you to run because certainly the only reason I ever ran my first half marathon was because my two friends were going to go run it. And I thought, well, you know, I can't let them show me up. So I better go do it too. <laughs> Oprah doing that is just on a scale beyond. <laughs> well, exactly. And the reason you ran is the reason everybody runs these days. It's because uh, running has become such a, uh, a common denominator in our culture that everybody knows someone in the office or somebody in their classroom or somebody uh, in the neighborhood who has run a 5K or a half marathon, a marathon or whatever it is. And you see these people out there and you realize all it takes is a little bit of gumption and hard work to achieve this <laughs> thing. So maybe I can give it a try. 
Well, if Oprah can do it, you can too. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to close looking forward, looking to the future. Uh, I think a really nice feature of this book is that you thread the needle between the women who ran just to finish and to prove a point and then the pretty rapid expansion of competition to better and better times. And a fun fact that I learned is, is that when Jackie Hansen ran the first sub two hour and 40 minute marathon in 1975, it only lasted 18 months. And then by 1980, Patty Catalano was the first American woman to run a sub 230 marathon. So uh, in that vein, what are the records today that are just itching to be broken? Well, in the women's marathon, uh, the record is uh, one of the best records on the book, male or female. Uh, England's Paula Radcliffe ran 215.25, oh, I don't know the exact year, about a decade ago. And, and no one has been able to come close to that since, not even the fantastic uh, East African women from Ethiopia and Kenya. So uh, the records are indeed getting harder to break. Uh, for a while, as you just said, women were breaking records every couple of months or a couple of mm. years. Now the level of women's competition is absolutely equal to the level of men's. And that means there are no easy races to, <laughs> to win. There are no easy records to win. When somebody wins a major race or breaks a record, it's, it's a real uh, shattering, impressive performance. So... Every time there's a new woman's record, it's not because the old one was soft. It's because somebody has <laughs> really taken a big step forward. Well, if any listeners are planning on <laughs> on making an elite run at the marathon, 215 is the number to, pre- to beat. <laughs> yeah, and if they beat it, tell them to call me first because I want the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ambi, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a real pleasure. And as I say to all of my guests, good game. Thank you very much, Maeve. It's been a pleasure for me as well. That does it for this week. Thanks again to Ambi for a great conversation. And listeners, please keep in touch. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at NYBF Sports, or like us on Facebook, just search for Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. You can always drop us an email at nybfsports at gmail.com, or please visit the website nybfsports.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter. It's a weekly email that alternates between delivering you new episodes and then on off weeks, some of the best sports stories that's curated by yours truly. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, good game listeners. Listeners.